You love technology, you love privacy, and you cherish freedom in the Constitution. This is our culture and way of life, and it's under attack from powers that be who want to know all that we do while we know little of what they do. Restore the Fourth is an organization seeking to restore that balance, and we need your help. Please head to RestoreTheFourth.com slash donate to help support our work. That's RestoreTheNumber4TH.com slash donate. Thank you for your support. Your government doesn't feel that you can be trusted with a powerful weapon, your thoughts. Encryption is ammunition, and in the battle to keep your thoughts your own, it's your right to have military grade. This is Privacy Patriots, episode number six, recorded April 24th, 2017. The Patriots and its active members have received no legal instruments requiring us to turn over any information since our last podcast, dated February 24th, 2017. My name is Chuck. And I'm Fong, and welcome to the Privacy Patriots Podcast, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. So, it's been a little while. Uh, this was uh, a two-parter. It is uh, the second of, of a two-part series, but it was more like a... Two-monther. Uh, it's more like a cliffhanger at the end of the, the, the at season. At the end of the season, yeah, yeah. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, it's it's literally been... Two months and three days yeah. since our last uh, our last podcast. I totally did not even realize that till we were stepping through the intro and you had to do two takes. But no time like the present, and uh, <laughs> we we've had as always. There's plenty uh, going on out there in the terms of public policy and technology and the intertwining of both. What's been news? Uh, the big one, of course. Uh, is the recent repeal of the Obama-era Internet privacy rules. And uh, that was no surprise under our new overlords. Sadly, sadly. But basically, uh, those rules I don't think even were slated to go into effect until later this year. Anyway. No, it was, it was supposed to go into effect at the end of this year. And it would have been very nice uh, because it, it, it would mean basically that your internet service provider, whoever they may be, mm-hmm. uh, would not be able to 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 sell your browser history to uh, to make a, a little more profit on top of what they're already making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Briefly, talk about the logistics of that. Basically, you're browsing. It's going through the routers of your ISP, obviously. Well, well, let's just say, let's just for the sake of the argument, just for the sake of the argument, let's say that your internet provider is Spectrum, and I'm not picking on Spectrum in particular, and I I don't have any idea what what they in particular are doing. You can insert any other ISP here you want. It could be Verizon. It could be. It, it really doesn't matter. The point of it is, whoever your internet service provider is. They are the ones who are actually doing the job of carrying your requests out to the Internet, getting the responses from the Internet, and bringing those responses back to you. So, in a nutshell, while they can't necessarily see everything you're doing because a lot of what you're doing is already encrypted, for which I am grateful. Through HTTPS. Through HTTPS, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But they can see where the traffic is going. Okay. And if so I... So is that a matter of 
even if you browse to an HTTPS address, they can still see the host name or domain that you're absolutely. Uh, let, let's say for the sake of the In argument, the IP, right? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, let, let's say for the sake of the argument that uh, that you were going to go visit Reddit. Mm-hmm. When you go and you punch into your browser www.reddit.com, what's going to happen is your browser is going to say, "Well, I don't know anything about this thing. I better call directory assistance." Mm-hmm. And it's going to reach out to a server that's usually operated by your internet service provider. Mm-hmm. And that server is going to come back with the IP address. Now, in the process of this, your internet service provider has the ability, if they want to, and I'm not saying any of them are doing this, but they have the ability, if they want to, to... Uh, keep track of all of those requests and say, okay, this this user is visiting this site, this site, and this site. Mm-hmm. On on top of that, once the IP address has been associated with the with the uh, with the site name, they can look and see, okay, this guy sent uh, spent maybe an hour browsing that particular website. There's some interest there. Mm-hmm. Okay, this guy looked at one page on that website and then moved on. There's no interest there. Mm-hmm. You know that sort of thing. So, so, but if I break down a URL, typical web URL, you have your protocol HTTPS, you have your host name or domain, www.reddit.com in this example, uh, and then often you'll have slash whatever, and you know, uh, there's that suffix portion of the URL. If you're browsing HTTPS, is that suffix beyond the domain name obscured is it encrypted it, it is encrypted yes um but so they can't look at exactly which porn you're viewing on <laughs> Pornhub. just that you're going to Pornhub. no no they they can't see what it is uh, they mm-hmm. they can see where you're going um obviously they they will from that particular aspect if we're going to follow through i can't believe you went there man <laughs> if we're going to follow through on that particular analogy they can possibly get some sort of an idea of what time of day you like to fap but um <laughs> beyond that uh, no they're not really going to need, going to know what to i don't think we've used that verb on the show before <laughs> But, uh, you know, I got to call out Pornhub, honestly, because they've come out and uh, uh, raised awareness about this and done a lot to protect users against this. Um, in, in the wake of this, I believe they went HTTPS only as at least one uh, step towards protecting its, its users' privacy. Sure. Now, there is, there is one caveat I have to throw out there, though, with regards to HTTPS use. And that is that most browsers do not do HTTPS by default, so you have to specifically ask for it. Um, of course, you can use an extension like HTTPS Everywhere, and that's a great step in the right direction. And uh, as the worst case fallback position, if a particular website is doing HTTPS only, like what Pornhub's done... Um, and like what Facebook has done, really. Yeah. I mean, th- this is not uh, this is not unique. necessarily unique to prurient uh, um, prurient Yes, <laughs> that's that's a good way of putting it. Yes, um, the um, if you put something into the browser address bar that has 
a suffix on it, and you don't put HTTPS on it. There's not really anything the site can do to protect you from letting that particular snippet of information out. All they can do is is correct you when you arrive, you know, mm-hmm. by by switching you to HTTPS at the earliest opportunity. But you already spoke your piece at that point. <laughs> Uh, but of course, this has incited excitement over VPNs as a possible uh, remedy around this. Um, mm-hmm. Now, for the layman, can we explain what a VPN does? Okay, I think the best way to uh, the best way to understand a VPN, or without getting into the technical nitty gritty, is that it shifts who you have to trust from one party to another party. So uh, that that's the effect that it has. Now, how does it do this? Well, in a nutshell, if you're using a, a VPN, stands for Virtual Private Network, mm-hmm. and it is an encrypted tunnel between where you are and someplace else. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, I use one. Actually, as I sit here uh, in your studio, I am actually using one right now with this laptop sitting in front mm-hmm. of me. And I mean, they're part and parcel of the business world right for, for now one. it's it's not it, it, it it's not for any particular reason except that this is the machine that i take with me to various places and and whenever i use wi-fi that is not my own i want to have that running mm-hmm. and um what it does is it takes out of view uh it takes out of view any any information that can be sniffed about where the traffic is ultimately going. All that the ISP can see, all that the owner of the Wi-Fi network can see, uh, is this connection that goes to the VPN server. Mm -hmm. But what happens is, when I send out a query, my computer will forward that through this encrypted tunnel to the VPN server... The VPN server will then make the query to the internet at large instead of it going directly from my on your machine. Behalf. Right. Make that request on my behalf, get the re- response on my behalf, drop it back into that encrypted mm-hmm. tunnel, and bring it back to my desktop. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is mm-hmm. when you hire a VPN, you've got to, hi- you've got to trust the VPN. The good news is that yeah, unlike – they could be – the VPN – they could be, just could be selling evil. your browsing history themselves. They have they have just as much potential to be evil as your internet service provider does. So you have to trust them. And, and you have to trust them. Now, the good news is VPN providers, um, they can be changed very easily. You know, most people, if you when you have your internet service provider, most of the country has between zero and one choices. <laughs> for an internet service provider, yeah, and uh, if you're if you're really lucky, you know, I I am uh, amongst the very lucky in this particular respect. I live in a spot where I have access to two internet service providers, mm-hmm. but uh, the the thing of it is, two is still not enough to to prevent them both from playing the same stupid games uh, and selling your data. Mm-hmm. So. I've actually heard some people arguing that this is not a big deal and it's maybe even an unfair imposition on the ISPs to say that they can't do this because uh, 
Facebook is tracking your data. Google's tracking your data. Any number of uh, websites and services that you're uh, utilizing out there on the internet uh, is tracking your browsing history or or or, or just your your activity. We'll we'll say at that well, point. You don't but, you don't have to use any social network at all. Um, yeah. For for any reason at all, um, that's that's a purely recreational yeah. thing. So it's it's voluntary. That, that's voluntary. And and as far as your search engine choices go, you know you've got multiple choices. If you don't like the way Google treats your data, you can go to Bing. If you don't like the way Bing or Google treats your data, uh, you can you can go to Start Page or to mm-hmm. DuckDuckGo or or. Yeah. or you know, you can even even pull up a, a some shadow of yeah. the past and use Yahoo. Yeah, but I even go further and make the analogy like if I'm connecting to Facebook or to Google and I'm utilizing their services, I'm willingly forming an interaction with Google or Correct. Facebook on the other end. Correct. Uh, let's put this in telephone terms. If I'm picking up the phone and I'm calling a company to do business with them over the phone, it's fair for me to expect that um, they're probably going to remember the conversation I had with them. Sure. What I talked about. They might even, uh, they probably have a database over there where they keep track of what I ordered. Mm -hmm. They may even uh, give me a call once in a while uh, with an offer based on uh, what I bought before. Um, But it's all kind of based on a relationship I had with them. Correct. How would you feel if the phone company listened into your phone calls and heard that you were calling, you know, XYZ phone proprietor and and just snooped in on what you were buying over the phone and then the phone company started giving you offers based on what it heard you talking to a third party about. That's the point. There's the ISP is a third party a man in the middle. You know what's very interesting about that analogy? Yeah. Is uh, that the telephone switch exists because of that very thing. Oh, true. <laughs> Before, I think I know that story. Th- yeah, it, it, uh, there, there was a, a guy that – it was invented by a, um, um, a guy that ran a funeral parlor of all things. But uh, back in the day, he – the the phone company had an operator who was uh, related to the owner of another funeral parlor. And when people were calling up for, for Stroger, they would be rerouted to this other funeral parlor instead. And it was obviously very bad for business. And, uh, and that was happening because, and that was the, happening guy's because wife. the phone company, somebody in the phone company was able to listen in on the calls. Yeah. Well, this is back in the day when you had to operate, you had to call the operator every time mm-hmm. and have them patch you into where you're making the call. But as part of that primitive system, the operator could listen in on the call. Sure. And one of these operators was, uh, happened to be the wife of the other. Uh, mortuary, and uh, anytime they made a call for uh, for the co- the competitor, she would just patch them into her husband's business. Yep. So, so that's so that what actually we're makes at the here. analogy that that actually makes the analogy so much stronger. I think. Yeah. Is to know that little bit of history. So uh, you know, I think most people are up in arms about this. I think we've seen even a, a lot of. Uh, I, I I've seen a decent number of cases of uh, re- Republican. I don't I I don't want to make the claim about politicians, but I, I've even seen some some uh, 
Donald fans on Reddit that are just like, wait a minute, this isn't cool. No. So that that's promising. And, and out where we are here, uh, um, Representative Elise Stefanik, uh, who's a Republican, uh, voted against this as well. So Excellent. Again, privacy is not necessarily a partisan issue in any way. So next in the news, uh, while we were in uh, cryogenic suspension, <laughs> uh, there was another big leak of data. Uh, lots of uh, the, the NSA's uh, tricks and toys came to light in the vault. Seven leaks? Yeah. Um, I, I guess the gist of this one is that uh, WikiLeaks got a hold of a, an entire arsenal of malware and other things that were used by the tailored access uh, – tailored access – there was some other term to it. Tailored access operations, I think it was, division of the NSA. Um and uh, these are the these are the tools that when they decide that they are going to go after you and you specifically, these are the things they deploy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously a, a a sense of humor in it, and obviously uh, some Doctor Who fans amongst the NSA staff. As for instance, they had one uh, of the tools that was called Weeping Angels, uh, mm-hmm. which was a an attack against uh, Samsung smart TVs. Yeah. Yeah. And what did that do? Um, from what I understand, Weeping Angel would actually keep the TV. Those these particular TVs are equipped with a camera, okay, uh, and um, maybe also a microphone. I I don't. I have a dumb TV, and I like keeping it that way. <laughs> um, and uh, the the gist of it is that the TV would show all the outward signs of being switched off. But it would still be live, uh, you know, watching the room, listening to the room, mm-hmm. and uh, presumably reporting back over the network when it sees something of interest. Yeah. So the NSA was exploiting this yeah. in order to uh, have a listening and viewing device and in some, for a target? In your living room, yes. In it's, some it's cases. Very, uh, very 1984-ish. Yeah. Now, I think there were a bunch of... Uh, hacking tools for windows that were revealed as well yeah and i didn't really pay them a whole lot of attention i'm not a windows user so no. i really didn't but, uh call i mean me. yeah we've always kind of had this looming suspicion about windows uh i i guess because of microsoft's uh past track record with with some government um collusion but i think they recently also uh came out uh, and and revealed one of their uh national security letters retroactively this week that the, the uh oh i missed that yeah um that that they were amongst uh the many queried for for information and and gagged from talking about it but um on the uh border side of things things <laughs> things continue to heat up um the wall is not quite built yet but we have the Border Patrol continuing their tricks that we, we mentioned last episode, uh, where they're, they've they been um, requesting... Uh, no, this is not a request. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is they a demand. claimed it was. The, the demanding uh, access to, uh, to whatever mobile devices, portable devices, laptops, phones, whatever that you may be carrying. Yeah. yeah. They, they uh, um, will... Uh, um, 
insist upon having your your passwords and such to no, get into highly it. recommend you highly recommend yes your password to yes. unlock your phone and uh, uh the, check out all of your social media affiliation a term that i have heard used to describe this is rubber hose decryption <laughs> it's it's where you you whack them with whack them with a rubber hose until they give up the the key yeah yeah so uh one of our heroes that we you know uh, we've this man is on fire he's relentless <laughs> senator ron wyden uh, is not having any of this you know he's been he he proposed legislation to uh, block this kind of cell phone snooping at the border it started out when he uh, submitted a letter to homeland security secretary john kelly and he was calling for accountability around reports that the customs and border agents were, were uh, obtaining the passwords to lock devices that um, belong to detainees at the border. And when we say detainees, we're including American citizens in that. Oh, yeah. Uh, which uh, is especially egregious in my mind. Uh, Wyden was arguing that the border agents directly requesting login credentials is in itself circumventing systems of checks and balances and and obviously violating the rights of american citizens in the process but uh his legislation is proposing that uh border agents would be required to secure a warrant how's that for a quaint <laughs> warrants <laughs> they, they still make those they had? yeah <laughs> warrant, really you mean actually have a have a reasonable suspicion and, and, and a specific target. Uh, yeah, he wants to require them to have a warrant to search the device, which I think would be a, no, a no-brainer. I, you know, I just don't understand how every new piece of technology that comes out, law enforcement just thinks, like, oh, the, the, the slate All the old rules don't apply yeah. anymore, yeah. When, like, you, you just need to use your brain and use some common sense and understand that our rights just transcend inherently to whatever we're storing our thoughts and and writing on. Um, But he also wants to forbid law enforcement from pressuring travelers to uh, give up their social media account credentials. Uh, And also the last demand it makes is that uh, DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, need report all instances of officials obtaining access to secure devices or social media accounts at the border because it sounds like it's a, a free for all. There's no yeah. accountability. There's no transparency or records of, of how often this is going on. On the de- defensive front, on that particular one, though, I did have an idea to to maybe put a little bit of a a, a break in this process. And the one of the thoughts that, and this is a nice low tech hack that anybody could do, mm. is you find if you're traveling with somebody, okay, and you're carrying a device with you, you care, you have one person take and change all the passwords to all the devices, and that person will then cross the border carrying nothing. Mm. About a half hour later, the person carrying all the devices crosses the border. No, I really can't give you the passwords. I haven't got a clue what they are. The person who holds the passwords crossed a half hour ahead of me. Sorry, you missed her. <laughs> I love those kinds of organic hacks. Yeah, it's 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 uncomplicated. Alex could do this. Yeah. 
<laughs> I think that's. I think that needs to be the benchmark now for for whether or not a a, a thing is too technically involved. Can Alex do this? <laughs> so last up, I wanted to give a little update on the the New York uh, ECPA, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. We've talked about this a bit because it's uh, it's pretty much boilerplate a uh, copy of what did pass in California. And uh, this week it was introduced in the New York Assembly by Assembly Member Dinowitz. So uh, we're uh, we have some movement. We're making some traction. Of course, it has to be sponsored in the Senate still, but. In the assembly, we have uh, Bill A01895, uh, and this bill, which I've been uh, I've been working to help secure uh, supporters down at the Capitol here in New York. Basically, it almost similar to what we were discussing in, in, in the border phone thing. You know, like we find that we need to go back and specify that, hey, you know, just because this is a website and it's stored uh, on a third-party server, this data is private data, belongs to an individual, and uh, you should need a warrant before you, you go get it. And it should be a specific request and not a broad dragnet of all the users of a system or something. Like, you, know. you know, this just, this just made me wonder something. What happens if somebody stores something, you know, and I'm not, I'm not talking digital. I'm talking about physical paper. If you put a physical piece of paper in, this, in a safety deposit box at a bank, who needs to be served with a warrant in order to get at that? Does it need to specify your stuff? Or can they go in and, and just rip open all the safety deposit boxes looking for, yeah. for something? Well, you know what? I remember the precedence for this, but I don't remember the outcome. Um, maybe somebody can email in and, and remind us. But uh, didn't the third-party doctrine originate with the, the U.S. mail? Wasn't the question whether the government could could uh, go to? I, I have no idea. Oh. I don't. I don't remember. Yeah. yeah, I know the question arose well before the electronic age of whether yeah. the government could uh, approach the U.S. Postal Service and and say, "Hey, we want to open this." We person's mail which you haven't your you haven't delivered yet you have in your custody but yeah that's the crux of it even even if i don't have the precedent for you the crux is is the third party doctrine yeah. whether whether the third party uh, can be served for your data so uh we we have a couple good interviews coming up uh this being the two-parter or the second part rather of a two-parter and on, since we made you wait so long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on civil asset forfeiture, which is a a, a real brick-and-mortar, non-electronic uh, Fourth Amendment is- issue, which is probably why Alex is really into it. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we learned uh, anything and everything that we could want to know about this topic. But uh, before we get to our two guests that, that enlighten us. Uh, of course, we have to do this episode's Patriots and Pariahs! So, of course, each episode, uh, we like to call out and, and, and uh, praise somebody who... Uh, took actions to protect our civil liberties and privacy rights uh, 
as well. We like to admonish somebody who uh, has ideas to the contrary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, who's our patriot this week? This episode's patriot is Barrett Brown, who is a journalist. He's uh, written for the Daily Beast. Huffington Post, The Guardian, a few other publications. And, and we've talked about him before because sure. he, he just got out of jail last year. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, he ran a wiki that was called Project PM, which was primarily focused on uh, gaining intelligence from the various leaks that have been going around. I'm, I'm sure he'd be covering Vault 7 if it wasn't a, a parole violation. <laughs> But he released a report about a surveillance project called Roma's Coin, which was discovered as a result of the H.B. Gary leak from a couple of years ago. And uh, this was focused on some malware that was aimed at Arab countries. Nutshell of it is that uh, he, he blew the whistle uh, on some of the government activities. He has paid a price for it, but let, let's be clear. This guy has got to have the biggest brass set that I have ever seen in a journalist because, let's put it this way, unrelated to his journalistic activity, he had the guts to take on the Mexican drug cartel, the Zetas. Okay. And uh, basically what had happened is uh, one of his sources, one of his sources who was in um, the Anonymous Hacker Collective was kidnapped by the Zetas, and he is the one who put forth the word that 75 uh, Zetas would be unmasked if uh, if this uh, anonymous member was not released. No. <laughs> <laughs> so that that takes uh, that takes a, a great deal of of guts, and uh, my hats off to him. So there's there there's our patriot Barrett Brown, journalist, uh, whistleblower. And, I guess, uh, secure of ransoms. <laughs> Our pariah this week, going back to uh, the repeal of the Internet privacy rules, um, is uh, Representative Sensenbrenner, the Republican from Wisconsin, who, uh, along with many other Republicans, voted uh, uh, to repeal these privacy rules. But... Um, he kind of stood out uh, because he had some interesting reasoning. He claimed, quote, nobody's got to use the Internet, that newfangled Internet. If we did that right in the beginning, we would have no Internet. That's got a certain odor to it, doesn't it? Yeah. So I'm assuming he has people that, that go on the Internet on his behalf and take care of <laughs> his online banking or what, yeah. what have you, you know, all... Well, I don't know. Nothing yeah, important. Well, I mean, the thing of it is, uh, you know, anybody that has uh, applied for a job recently knows how essential the internet is. Yeah. You know, and I, I went through this just last year. It's, it's essential. Yeah. And, you know. Somewhat parallel to this, I always fire back at people that that uh, try to rip on. You know, like they'll they'll see these cases of they'll hear about. Oh, homeless! There, there are homeless people that have smartphones these days. Like, look, you know, what kind of pass backwards thing is that? You know, but in this day and age, if I wasn't tied to a physical address, I didn't have a home, and I was, I was nomadic because I was homeless. What would the number one survival tool in this day and age be, other than a smartphone? Internet access for that smartphone. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because if you're trying to dig yourself out, you're trying to maybe 
apply for jobs, get jobs. Uh, that's kind of the, your only way to do it. You're probably getting kicked out of internet cafes by virtue of uh, aspects of your homelessness. And uh-huh. So, you know, that, to me, if you see homeless people with smartphones, it it's not a testimony to misplaced priorities, but rather a, a proof of how integral and how important the internet is these days. So off of the internet and into the real world, as as much as I hate going back there, <laughs> uh, you know, as we as we mentioned last episode, uh, we talked a bit about it. There are Fourth Amendment concerns uh, occurring in the brick and mortar sense, and the number one issue these days is civil asset forfeiture. Where, in short, if even if you hadn't committed a crime, you can have your money, your automobile, even your home uh, confiscated uh, without. You know, from my perspective, without any due process. And we kind of wanted to understand how the hell this is going on in America. You know, where did this come from? We were uh, lucky to be joined by uh, uh, two experts that have either written extensively or or practiced in this area. So let's get a listen to So when I was at the HOPE conference this summer... Uh, it was tabling for Restore the Fourth. Uh, I had somebody come up and ask me, what about civil asset forfeiture? And Restore the Fourth, the majority of the issues that we've been involved in here in the 21st century have been, I'd say, 95% related to digital privacy and technology issues. But it's easy to forget that there are good old brick and mortar Fourth Amendment issues. So uh, it got me thinking, yeah, why? what are we doing about civil asset forfeiture? So we wanted to tackle that topic here on the show. We're glad to be joined by Michael. He's a, a lawyer in New York who's well-written on the topic, and hopefully we can demystify that topic for our listeners. So welcome aboard. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks so much, Sean. Happy to, happy to be on the line. So first of all, can you just give us a basic definition? What is civil asset forfeiture? <laughs> That is a great question, actually. Um, so civil asset forfeiture stems from a very interesting idea that it's not an individual that is guilty or innocent of a crime, uh, but actually an object. And in kind of modern American policing, this means that it's a mode by which police can seize your property if they believe it has some nexus to criminal activity and the exact nexus depends on the state, but for purposes of federal law, it's a preponderance of the evidence, which you may recognize is obviously a much lower standard than would be required for a criminal conviction. Now, as a layman, it smacks me as absurd to be able to prosecute an object, but can you shed any light on you know how this is possible in the American legal system? To uh, are we actually bringing charges against inanimate objects? Yes, and that's how you can usually spot a forfeiture case. Uh, they have kind of crazy names like. Uh, United States versus one assortment of 89 firearms or, you know, United States versus 
$200 in cash. (laughs) So that's literally what's on the docket. They they actually do sound as absurd as the concept. Yes. Oh, absolutely. The the proceeding is against the object itself. Um, I think there was one in the John Oliver segment that he highlighted. It was like the United States versus 65,000 pounds of shark fins. <laughs> so it, it is actually an action against the object. And uh, it's a weird doctrine because it's, it's a very old uh, – it's a very old doctrine. Actually, usually people and even court cases note that it comes from the Bible. There is a oh. passage in Exodus. That's a new one. To yeah, me. Exodus twenty-one. Yeah, Exodus twenty-one twenty-eight says that if an ox gores a man, the ox shall be stoned, uh, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Okay. Um, and this actually came into English law in the tenth century where there's an action under the English law where if an object was deemed to have harmed a person, I think, for instance, there's a case of somebody falling off a wagon wheel, the, hmm. the, the object had to be surrendered to the crown. Okay. Um, you know, initially the idea was, well, the crown would use the value of the object to pay for masses for the person's soul, and eventually, you know, that kind of got forgotten, and the crown just took the object. So it's... It's very old, um, which is why it doesn't really make a lot of sense in how we think about things. It, it sounds to me like uh, like what this is is a, a case of ridiculous amounts of mission creep. A bit. And, you know, the, the Supreme Court, when it deals with forfeiture, often will take a really long time to remind everybody that we've had this for a long time. So, you know, in, in the U.S. context, we have had forfeiture since the beginning of the Republic. Actually, one of the first forfeiture cases is, is called the Palmyra from 1827. So in American history, this is, this is not new. It's been with us close to the beginning. It's been with us for a really long time. Um, there, are, there are types of forfeiture that existed in, in English law that we didn't like, and the Constitution actually bans forfeiture of the state for treason, which means that if, you know, if you were a traitor in England and under English law, your estate was forfeit to the crown and your heirs inherited nothing. That is, that is prohibited under the Constitution. Um, but statutory forfeiture, such as we have now, is, is allowed and has been around for a long time. Um, the, the major places that popped up, it, it popped up in the early Republic as a tool against pirates. Um, it popped up during the Civil War as a way to seize the assets of people who sided with the Confederacy. And it popped up during Prohibition as a way to seize, you know, distilleries or other uh, forms of of illicit alcohol production or distribution. And then in the 1970s, when the drug war was really kind of gearing up, lawmakers looked around and said, hey, you know, we've got this interesting thing. Why don't we see how this works as a tool to fighting fighting the war on drugs in scare quotes and uh, and its use has just exploded over the last 40 years. And it's really, you know, it used to be a really fringe thing that didn't occur very often. And now it's something where uh, people are focused on, on it because its use is just rampant and has exploded. Now you said something a minute ago that, uh, that caught my interest specifically that anytime there's one of these cases, there's uh, a reminder that we've had this for a very long time. Um, 
my question would be, is this reminder being offered up as a reason to continue it or a reason why uh, or a defense against it? Because uh, as, we, as we've already discussed, we've got a bit of mission creep here, so it's like it has wandered away from its originally intended purpose, and, and I'm, I'm curious whether this is more often being used as an offense or a defense. It's usually being used to protect the practice, actually. It's, it's sometimes the Supreme Court, uh, in trying to explain its supreme wisdom will say, you know, we'll just kind of throw up its hands with a lengthy historical justification and say, well, we've had this for a really long time and this is how it works and, you know, we don't really want to disturb it. Justice Thomas uh, recently has actually come out saying that he would like to see more challenges to forfeiture. So hopefully that will start to rise to the Supreme Court level. But actually in the 90s, there were three cases that came up to the Supreme Court that uh, two of which were resolved actually in, in somewhat troubling ways. And one, one came out, I, I think, rightly. And after those cases, uh, there was a lot of pressure put on Congress and the Civil Asset Forfeiture Reform Act, also called CAFRA, was passed in the early 2000s, I guess the late 90s, to try to deal with forfeiture and curb some of the worst abuses. So those three cases were, the worst was this case called Bennis versus Michigan, um, which you'll see discussed a lot in, uh, in articles on the subject. In Venice, uh, poor Mrs. Venice, her husband was out in Detroit uh, soliciting prostitutes in her car, or in, in the family's car, I guess I should say. Um, and he was arrested. And because the car was a nectus, you know, was, was connected to the crime of soliciting prostitutes, it was seized. And Mrs. Bennis sued the state trying to get her property back. And her argument was that she was an innocent owner and, you know, she shouldn't be, she shouldn't have her property confiscated for her husband's doing. Rehnquist, uh, the chief justice at the time, said that there was a, quote, long and unbroken line of cases stretching back from, stretching back to that case I mentioned to you in 1827 that said that you know, the, whether or not you were ignorant of, of your property's use was irrelevant, and uh, that ultimately it was whether the property was being used for a crime or not uh, that mattered, and the court ruled that Mrs. Bennett lost her car. You know, so that, that prompted a lot of outcry. That makes me wonder if your property was stolen, if your car was uh, carjacked and then used in a crime. By the letter of the law... Could, could it still yeah. be confiscated? It, it could be confiscated, but I think under those circumstances, you could win an, you could win an action to get it back. Mm-hmm. But the, the tough thing about this is, you know, this Bennis case made Congress mad, and the CAFRA legislation, they included a so-called innocent owner defense. But the tricky thing about it is most states... And, and the federal legislation, the innocent owner is actually required to prove their innocence and not the inverse, right? Yes. So for in your carjacking example, I, I think you're right that the property would be seized, but you would be able to get it back because presumably, you know, you could show that you'd filed a police report and, you know, that somebody had stolen it. And, you know, and you prove your innocence. Your car for a little while, but get it back. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, again, as a layman... It strikes me as uh, just so antithetical to everything that at least we think we know about 
American yes. justice and due process in this country. It, it's it is scary. I mean, I, I won't lie to you. It's scary. Uh, it, the procedure is described as Kafka esque. Um, hmm. People feel a little bit like they're in a surreal world when this happens. I, you know, to your point. Well, that seems to be uh, a theme actually, these days. <laughs> yeah. What's even What's even scarier, actually, than your property being stolen are cases like these, uh, where you either one don't know that your your property is connected to a crime, or Two, where your property just kind of happens to be connected to a crime, you don't have anything. To, there's nothing you can do about it, right? So here's two examples, or, or a couple examples in each of those universes. There was a a case that attracted a lot of attention in Philadelphia recently. A couple had their house confiscated because their son, I think, was in possession of forty dollars worth of heroin on their front porch and, and had like arranged a small drug transaction. And because the house, you know, was connected to the drug transaction by virtue of the fact that it occurred on the premises, the city actually seized the house. Yeah, I think I heard about this case. But I mean, by that matter, couldn't you, if a drug deal went down in the back of a uh, convenience store, could they seize the convenience store (laughs) from the owner? You absolutely could. There was a case, I think, in Massachusetts with this guy named uh, Caswell, who owned a hotel in the kind of seedy area. And eventually, federal officials uh, seized his hotel, claiming that he, quote, facilitated drug crimes by allowing his guests to use drugs in the rooms. And this was in spite of the fact that he, you know, installed security cameras, bright lights, let police, you know, use rooms for drug busts. The hotel was still seized. I, I will note that wow. he did win the case to get it back. He he won the case to get it back. But, you know, I mean, obviously having your property seized in yeah. the first instance is a pretty major hit. To I, I really thought I was coming up with, like, a wild hypothetical. And I'm facepalming no. myself right now is <laughs> that you're bringing me into reality. No. Um, and it actually gets wilder, uh, believe it or not. Um because, you know, what we're talking about now are people's, are people's homes or businesses. And there's actually a bit more protection for real property. Uh, you're usually, there usually has to be a hearing before real property can be seized. There was a, a Supreme Court case that dealt with this, basically saying because you can't, because you can't take real property out of the jurisdiction or hide it anywhere, you know, the federal government or state government doesn't have a good reason not to give you notice of the hearing beforehand. But that doesn't apply to any other movable item that you may have, right? So your car or cash. And a, there's been a massive amount of traffic enforcement where they'll basically just kind of take, take cash out of people's cars and people will never get it back. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center reviewed, I think, 141 cases in Alabama, which has some pretty aggressive forfeiture laws. And of those 141 cases, the state won 131 of them. And the reason they won is just because it's just not worth it for people to contest it. And I think the average dollar amount that was seized was $206. Now, what's the um, alleged uh, legal theory behind that? That that they can, uh, I mean, are they accusing the are they accusing the asset of what are they? Okay, what charge are they leveling against the cash? Basically, what they're saying is 
there's and this is the other kind of weird thing about this is you as an individual don't have to be convicted of a crime at all or you can be acquitted what's necessary to forfeit your property is that it's you know uh there's a preponderance of evidence that it's connected to an illicit activity you know as defined within a certain statute so uh a preponderance of evidence could be a drug dog alerted to the fact that there was cocaine residue on a thousand dollars worth of cash that you that you just you know had because you were going to purchase a I don't know a chest of drawers on Craigslist or something. And this this happens pretty often to people where they they're driving through a state trying to make some large cash purchase and uh, a drug dog alerts during a traffic stop. That's probable cause that it's connected to drug activity, and it's just seized. You know, and, and you can challenge to get it back, but there's no right to counsel in these cases. And, and most people just find it, you know, more cost effective to just walk away. That's an interesting aspect of it is the lack of a right to counsel or is it just a, a an extreme obstacle to be able to have representation? Yeah, so it's so in a criminal case, you would always have you would always have a right to counsel. Right. But. Because you're not, because civil forfeiture is not a criminal action. It's a civil action. Okay. And because it's against, it's against the property, not against you. You're, the owner is actually just called, what's called a third party claimant, right? They, they actually have very limited rights in civil forfeiture action because the action is against the property itself. So none of those constant, nice, you know, constitutional guarantees that we take for granted in the criminal space kick in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you so know, you have no, no counsel. You can, you have no cause, or uh, forgive me, I'm I'm not a, a, a lawyer. You have so no I interest. Forget. You have no interest in exactly. it, really, other than as the other than as the owner of the property, which the government has said is connected to criminal yeah. activity. So it's it's troubling because police departments understand this, and they they target people with small amounts of assets that they know just won't challenge it. And if you don't challenge it, you know, the state wins by default. Yes. Um, now you've given us a pretty thorough, uh, background on the origins of the practice. You know, I had no idea it went back e- even farther <laughs> than the, than the beginnings of our country, but the contemporary form of it, uh, you, you know, I've gotten the idea that you've inferred, it's connected with the drug war to a certain extent. The modern form of civil asset forfeiture, was that something that arose at the time, you know, as part of the Nixon drug war or did it really come later? It started to, it started to really pop up in the eighties. I think the original statute allowing for it was in the seventies. It took them a little bit of time to figure it out. And, you know, I mean, the tough thing about forfeiture is, they they don't necessarily they have some wins for the quote good guys. I mean, for instance, they they seize properties owned by Pablo Escobar in Miami. Um, you know, they take they take yachts, they take expensive cars. You know, as a tool for drug enforcement, it does work. The problem is is that it 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 works a little too well. Right. It it casts too broad of a net. I mean, if you, you know, I mean, it's been in the news, I think yesterday. I mean, uh, Ted Cruz was saying that he wanted to take El Chapo's assets and use them to pay for the wall. I mean, that's a, 
That's a forfeiture concept. Mm. Um, you know, the, the Trump administration is actually very pro-forfeiture. Uh, Jeff Sessions, I think, was quoted in 2015 as saying that uh, 95% of asset forfeiture cases involve people who, quote, have done nothing in their lives but sell dope, um, which I, I think evidence would, would prove not to be true. And um, I think Trump has made some pro-asset forfeiture comments. But, I, you know, this is the rare issue where really the right and left uh, do agree that, that there's a major problem. Mm-hmm. Now, does it po- specifically pose constitutional concerns like uh, to the letter of the constitution are we uh, are, are we bleeding the line of what is constitutional or is it really uh, object just objectionable on a, on a different level it, civil forfeiture sits in a strange constitutional blind spot let's say people have challenged forfeiture under the fifth amendment and under the eighth amendment fifth amendment being right to due process and Eighth Amendment being excessive fines. Uh, a couple problems with that. The first is, as I mentioned, a lot of times it's just not worth it for people to challenge, so they just don't. Um, and, and, you know, there's no, there's no kind of basis for the defense in the first place. Moving past that, under, under the Eighth Amendment, there, there was a big win, a big kind of anti-forfeiture win in the 90s where a forfeiture was thrown out under the excessive fines clause in the Eighth Amendment, but that hasn't really gone very far because there's a there's a somewhat complicated analysis. But a, a lot of times, this this analysis doesn't apply to what is called the proceeds of crime. So, uh, you know, for instance, if I if I bought a house with my drug proceeds and that's forfeited. The amount that I forfeited it would never be considered excessive because it's, it's not really a fine. It's just the, the illegal gains of my activity. So the Eighth Amendment doesn't really help us. And the Fifth Amendment, right to due process, has also been tested. Um, and there's a couple different theories that you could think about um, right to due process, but none of them have really worked. And, uh, and, and, you know, for instance, um, you could say, well, this violates, this violates double jeopardy clause under the Fifth Amendment, right? Because I'm being criminally convicted of a, I'm being criminally convicted and then I'm being, you know, I'm being hit again when you take my property. And the Supreme Court has said no. Uh, again, you know, going back to one of your questions at the beginning of this, whether this is, whether the historical analysis is a shield or a sword, the Supreme Court has actually said, no, if you look at the history of the practice, it's not a criminal action. It's a civil action. It's not a successive prosecution. So, you know, it doesn't invoke double jeopardy concerns. Right. And they've actually even ruled in this case, United States versus one assortment of 89 firearms, that even if you're acquitted in the underlying criminal case that gave rise to the seizure, that the property can still be forfeited because the bar for forfeiting the property is lower than the bar for criminal conviction. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's scary because it seems, you know, it doesn't really seem to pass the sniff test, but in terms of constitutional analysis, it, it, it has survived for a long time. 
Well, hopefully we, we see more and more people uh, working to reform it or uh, at least bring it into reasonable limitation. So uh, we, we can at least hope for the future. We're glad that you were able to, to join us and really kind of open us up to the full picture of this. You know, we had a, a decent idea of what was going on out there and what this was about, but we really have a much more thorough understanding. So we thank you for joining us and sharing your knowledge with us. Thanks you guys for letting me uh, geek out about it. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I would, I would say to your listeners that this is, uh, although it's a arcane and complicated subject that it's one that a lot of people are focusing on right now. And, you know, I, I know that there is a lot of pressure for legislative reform to really do something about, about this practice. And, uh, you know, really the only way that change can get made on this is we, we can't wait for the courts to bail us out on this one and uh, calling calling legislatures, le- legislators and and trying to push for reform is, is the best best path forward. And, and Congress has listened before, and, and I hope they will listen again. All right. Uh, Michael from New York, thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. So we're joined now with Robert Johnson, who's an attorney from the Institute for Justice, who has been uh, making some inroads on the issue of civil asset forfeiture. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Would you want to start out just by telling us a bit about yourself and uh, the, about the Institute for Justice? Sure. Well, the uh, Institute for Justice is a nonprofit law firm. We represent people uh, across the country for free in cases that we think are uh, you know, important, raise important issues of constitutional law in order to advance the vision of a, of a free society. You know, we have a, a number of issue areas, but one of them that's uh, you know, relevant here is, is private property. And we represent people whose property has been seized by the government. Um, we've done eminent domain cases. We did the Kilo case out of New London. Um, but we also do uh, civil forfeiture cases where the government is taking property um, because they allege that it was uh, used in the commission of the crime, but uh, they don't actually prove it. They just take it, and then they force people to prove their own innocence to get it back. Mm-hmm. And we've been litigating those kinds of cases for uh, for years now, and uh, you know, really been trying to raise the profile of this issue to bring it to people's attention and to change the law. And, uh, you know, it's been a, a, a crazy trip, but it's, it's, we've been making incredible progress in bringing this issues to people's attention and getting uh, legislatures to enact reforms uh, and even winning victories in court. Awesome. Um, yeah, having a look at your website, which uh, you want to plug that real quick? Sure, yeah. Uh, people can go. It's uh, www.ij.org. That's an easy one, but uh, yeah, I had a look on there today, and and uh, there were a number of prominent civil asset forfeiture cases that you profiled, and I assume you uh, defended the victims of those. One I had interest in just focused on what was referred to as courtroom four seventy eight in Philadelphia, and that sounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That sounds kind it's of like ominous. room 101 in uh, 1984. <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. Yeah, it's could... a it's a room. Uh, it's a courtroom with no judge, only prosecutors. Uh, and it's just as bad as it sounds. 
Um, this is a place where when law enforcement takes your property using civil forfeiture, um, you know, it could be your cash, it could be your car, it could be your house. You then have to go to this courtroom uh, and they'll set a date and it's a cattle call. You'll show up and there's, you know, a, a whole bunch of other people who've had their property taken to and they, they go through the list, the prosecutors, and they call everybody's name. And if you're not there when you, when they call your name, then you lose your property forever. But if you are there, uh, they don't actually hear your case or decide anything. They just tell you, well, thank you for showing up. Uh, we're not ready to actually do anything in your case today. So we're going to do what we call relist it. We're going to relist it to a later date. And then you have to come back at that later date. And if you don't show up the next time, then you lose your property forever. But if you do show up, they'll just relist it again. Uh, so people get caught in this endless cycle of having to show up. And any any one time that you mess up is counted against you forever. But, uh, of course, it's not the same thing for the government. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's a, a sort of Kafkaesque kind of place. Yeah, we've heard that word come up. And I was going to say, this place almost sounds like something out of a Monty Python skit, you know, I'm, I'm here for an argument. Oh no, this is property confiscation. Sorry. Uh, right. There were, there are a couple notable, uh, cases that you guys focused on. We've heard a number of, you know, absurd cases such as people losing their homes when their children are caught doing drug deals, things like that. But, um, one of the ones that was a bit heartbreaking, a bunch of cash donations that were uh, collected by a Christian rock band on behalf of a Thai orphanage. But they, they had donations seized and they've been kind of held in limbo by the civil asset forfeiture procedure. Yeah, that's, that's uh, one of the most amazing cases. Uh, our client there was a, a man named Awa, who was the tour manager for a Burmese Christian rock band. Um, and... He was driving home to Texas from a show, and he was driving through Muskegee County, Oklahoma. And he was pulled over by a police officer who uh, uh, ostensibly pulled him over for a broken taillight, but uh, you know, let him off with a warning. So you know, question whether that was the real reason he was ever pulled over. But the police officer then uh, you know started poking around the car and ultimately brought a dog who sniffed around and the dog alerted on uh, cash, which is not surprising because almost all cash will draw a drug dog, a drug dog alert. It's um, kind of in the nature of, of cash. Uh, and so the, the police officer finds these cash donations that were raised by the Burmese Christian rock band, uh, many of them still in their um, envelopes where they were put by people who were who were donating them to go to this orphanage in Thailand. So the, the officer takes Awa into the station and he questions him and Awa explains the situation and actually shows him the website for the band and even uh, puts him in touch with another band member on the phone who verifies the story. And the officer obviously believes Awa enough because he lets Awa go, oh. but he keeps the How cash. convenient. Right, exactly. Um, and so uh, Awa then, you know, is, is not, there's no allegation that he's a criminal. 
but he has to prove where that money came from, and he has to prove his own innocence in order to get it back. Uh, and it's a process that takes a, a, you know a, a great deal of time. So that was really an amazing case. Uh, in that case, we you know brought it to the uh, attention of the national media, and the story went live on uh, the Washington Post. And within hours of the story going live, suddenly, uh, suddenly the police no longer wanted to keep this. Okay. <laughs> you know, they couldn't give it back fast enough, uh, which is something that we see a lot. You know, it, these things are, uh, you know, the, the law enforcement will, will take money. And as long as no one's really paying attention, they insist, well, this is obviously drug yeah. proceeds that we need to be able Does to. Does it come them. down to what they can get away with? Essentially. Yeah, exactly. As soon as everyone's paying attention, then it's like, oh, well, this is just a mistake. Uh, you know, an isolated mistake. Here, have your money back. <laughs> so, uh, But it sounds like it hasn't been uh, isolated at all. It's been in, in increasing, it, maybe we could say exponentially o- over the last few years. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That isolated is their word. That's, <laughs> that's, uh, and it's not isolated at all. I mean, the, the volume of civil forfeiture has gone from, uh, you know, a few million dollars a year in the 1980s when this really started to get off the ground to billions of dollars a year annually today. That's the amount of money that they're, that they're taking using civil forfeiture. Uh, every year, police take more money using civil forfeiture uh, than the value of all the property that is stolen by burglars across the entire country. That's a factoid for you. Yeah. It is. So, um, you know, and it, yeah, it, it's something that really is driven by the fact that when police take money using civil forfeiture, they get to keep it. So they get to use it to fund their own budget. Uh, and that's something that creates a powerful incentive to take property from people who haven't done anything wrong. You know, people like AWA or, or other people who we've represented. You mentioned the case of, um, you know, two parents who the uh, city of Philadelphia tried to take their home. Mm because their son allegedly dealt $40 of drugs. That's all it took. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, continuing on you know, Institute for Justice resume here, looks like you, you, you've come to the defense of, of many victims of this practice. Uh, one I think we, we may or may not have heard of, or if, if not, it was, it, there's other similar cases. Can you tell us about this uh, woman in, in Albuquerque in a similar situation to that family's drug dealing son you mentioned uh, had her car impounded and 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 forfeited. Yeah, this is an amazing case. Um, you know, partly because of the facts, although this is the facts are you know something you see all the time. Where she she lent her son to her her excuse me she lent her car to her son, uh, and he took it for a drive. Um, you know, she he asked her if he could borrow the car to go to the gym. And she thought that was where he was going. But lo and behold, he actually uh, took it for a, a much longer trip to go see his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And then on the way back home, um, he was pulled over and arrested for drunk driving. And, uh, you know, she's at this point frantic, wondering where is her son? Where is her car? And, uh, you know, finally figures out what's going on and learns that the police have taken her car and are going to uh, forfeit it, not because of anything that she did, but because her son broke the law. And again, it's it's her car. Her son doesn't own it. So, um, you know, this case then 
Uh, she goes to a hearing where the city says, well, you know, we'd be willing to give you your car back, but only if you pay us $4,000. And what was the rationale there? Uh, it's, you know, this is something we see constantly, which is just they're always willing to settle these forfeiture cases for some portion of the value of the property. And that's just how it works. You know, in the, their, their rationale is, hey, you know, uh, it saves us time. It saves you time. I mean, it almost sounds like extortion. Well, and I think it is. Yeah, it is exactly like that. But, you know, put yourself in the position of a property owner who, you know, attorneys aren't, attorneys aren't free. Um, I mean, you know, uh, we are, but most attorneys aren't free. And you've got to go out and pay someone to get this property back, and it's going to take time. Or you could just pay up and get it back today. And a lot of people find they don't really have any choice but to take that kind of an offer. Um, but Arlene is a, mm. a, you know, I say stubborn, but in a good way. She's a <laughs> stubborn person. Yes, uh, right. tenacious. That's, that's the word. And she, uh, and she says no. And she decides she's going to represent herself in court. So she, you know, um, they, they take her to court and she files something saying, you know, look, I'm an innocent owner. And uh, you can't take my car. And at this point, I was um, looking for somebody to represent in Albuquerque because, uh, you know, sort of while all this was going on, the state of New Mexico had actually passed a law outlawing civil forfeiture, saying you had to be convicted of a crime. Really? Before your money could be taken or your other, other property. And the law enforcement in Albuquerque just wasn't following the law. So uh, we wanted to find a case where we could raise that issue. And so we were just looking through court records, and I found Arlene's case and gave her a call. And um, you know, Believe it or not, it's actually kind of hard to convince people to, to take free legal services sometimes because they, they kind of wonder what the scam is. You know, <laughs> you have to, you have to oh, kind of yeah. convince them that you're for real. And But, you know, we, we talked for a while and you know, sort of explained what we were doing. And, and Arlene is now... Um, you know, just very much a true believer in, in uh, fighting for this cause as much as, you know, as much as their lawyers are. And uh, it's been, uh, it's been really interesting. We, we, you know, as soon as we um, filed papers on her behalf and got involved and she suddenly had real lawyers, and bear in mind, this is, they've had the car at this point for about five months. Yeah. Uh, suddenly they give a closer look to the file. And they discover that, uh, lo and behold, the car wasn't actually located within the city limits of Albuquerque when they seized it. Oh, great. <laughs> details, details. <laughs> now, now, let me ask you, was this, was this, uh, did, let me see, how do I want to put this? This was the, the rationale they gave when they decided to unseize the car, you're saying? Exactly. Lovely. Oh, that, that, that was them saying that. Offering that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, oops, our bad. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, it just shows you what a difference it makes. If she had never had a lawyer, they never would have checked. Yeah. And no one ever would have would have noticed. Um, but they had no right to even take that car in the first place. Um, so, you know, that case is still pending. It's still ongoing. Um, oh, really? Can, she's still fighting to shut the program down. Oh, okay. Um, but... And, so, but she has her car back in her possession. But she does have her car back. Yeah. Okay. Oh, good. 
Well, we're glad that you're making happy endings. Uh, you know, the last case I'm wondering about, uh, you mentioned Cash and how gotten the impression that Cash is, is a uh, high target these days because of this. There was a, a college student who ha- was traveling with a large amount of cash, uh, was going through an airport, I believe. Yeah, this is uh, Charles Clark. He was flying in uh, northern Kentucky uh, airport near Cincinnati, Ohio, and he was flying uh, home to Florida, and he had his life savings with him, $11,000 in cash. He was a college student, and uh, he was, you know, he actually is a, he smokes recreationally, and he had smoked before going to the airport, which, you know, maybe not the, not the best idea, but uh, the, the uh, airport police decided that he was suspicious because he smelled to them. And they, uh, they you know, kind of pull him aside and they ask to look at his bags and they find his cash. And they decide, you know, anybody who smells like marijuana and has $11,000 in cash must be a drug runner. So they take his cash. They went looking for one, one set of green and didn't find it, but found another and said, this will do. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> So they take it, and, and, it, and again, this is just one of those things where eventually they gave it back, uh, and it, oh, it wasn't like it had to go to trial. Once he had lawyers and he started to present a real defense, you know, they didn't want to be bothered. But again, that that process took months. Yeah. And during that time, he doesn't have that money. And, and again, if he never, if he didn't have the lawyers, you know, yeah. he never would have gotten that money back. Well, fair to say, if uh, if I have any of my property confiscated, I know who I'm calling. <laughs> <laughs> you have quite a track record. Now, where are you located? Um, so we're headquartered in uh, Arlington, Virginia, mm-hmm. and I work in the Virginia headquarters. Okay. okay. We do have offices around, around the country. Though. Okay. So we've heard these cases of uh, litigation that you, you've come to the defense of, but does the Institute for Justice do any work on the legislation side of things at all? Absolutely. And, um, you know, we've been pushing reforms all across the country. I mentioned how New Mexico passed a law, you know, abolishing civil forfeiture, which was what prompted our lawsuit in Albuquerque. And um, that was one of the first. They, you know, it's a, it's a great law. It, it basically says, um, two things. One is the, the police can't take your property unless they've convicted you of a crime. And then the other thing it says is once they've taken your property, it has to go um, into the sort of general bank account for the state so that the legislature can decide what to spend it on instead of just going directly back into the into the pockets of the police department. Um, that's the one taking yeah. the cash. And so we can kind of, of remove the assent- in direct incentive a bit. I think perverse incentive is the is the usual term used for that sort of thing. Yeah, well, that's exactly the term. Uh, and, you know, we've been pushing similar laws, and, um, you know, that it's been a, a process where now, um, to, one, to one extent or the other, about 20 states now have reformed their civil forfeiture laws. And, that's awesome. Um, you know, some of them have gone as far as New Mexico, uh, and others have gone, you know, not quite as far. Uh, and some of those you're yeah, just taking the very first step of requiring reporting. Uh, and even that is, you know, an important thing that most states, we don't even know how much civil forfeiture is going on. 
We don't know what they're taking. We don't know uh, when they're taking it from who. Yeah, uh, so they're not transparent with numbers. their records. Yeah, and you know the the first step to getting the reform of the substantive issues is just knowing what's going on. Mm-hmm. So um, you know even even reform that um, that you know sort of sheds a light on the situation can be very valuable. Now I'm wondering. Is this at all relegated or focused towards one level of law enforcement or another? Is this mostly uh, municipal police departments? Is it sheriff's departments? Is it the feds or all of the above? It's uh, it's really all of the above. The whole sort of evolution of this, it really started in the 1980s with a a federal law that um, the Comprehensive Drug Act that uh, did a couple things. One was it expanded the various crimes that could give rise to forfeiture under federal law. And then it created what's called the Asset Forfeiture Fund, which is a, a federal fund where, you know, if the federal government seizes property, it goes into this fund and then law enforcement can can take it back out to spend it, uh, federal law enforcement, without having to, without having to um, you know, go to Congress to ask for appropriation. And that's really what created this profit incentive in the 1980s was this, was this law. And that's, you know, you can sort of directly see the, the rise of civil forfeiture starts then and it just takes off exponentially because all of this is driven by the profit incentive. Uh, and the other thing that, that Congress did in the 80s was they created what's called equitable sharing. Uh, and this is, it allows uh, local law enforcement to basically cooperate with the feds, and what you'll have is a, a you know, state or local police officer will seize a piece of property, um, and then they'll transfer it to federal prosecutors. And federal prosecutors will forfeit the property under federal law, and then they'll give uh, the proceeds, up to 80% of it, to the local law enforcement, with the feds then taking a cut as well. And so uh, this does a couple of things. One thing it does is it, is it basically gives um, local, state and local officers an incentive to focus on things that are federal crimes rather than things that are you know, state and local crimes. So presented with a choice between you know, going after a, a drug runner or a murderer, suddenly the drug runner is the one that pays. Um, and the other thing it does is it, is it basically says that um, you know, in a state that where there are stringent limits on how you can take property, um, you can get around those limits by by taking money and then transferring it to the feds, to the feds, and then getting a, a what's essentially a kickback when the feds forfeit the money. Um, and so that's a it's a really pernicious part of this. Strangely, this is it's almost reminding me more of the Lufthansa heist in Goodfellas than of any law enforcement action. You know, everybody's getting in on this deal and getting a cut. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the Charles Clark seizure is a really good example of this. When, after they took his money, there were two, two law enforcement agencies that were directly involved in the seizure. I was like the airport police and then the local police, but um, they all have all these different agencies, local agencies have, um, sharing agreements among each other. So if one of them takes property, then they all get a, a cut of it. So 16 different agencies, local agencies, submitted requests for equitable sharing uh, money after the, 
after the um, you know the property was transferred to the DEA for forfeiture under federal law. So you've got 16 different state and local agencies, some of which did nothing uh, and weren't even involved in this, but are all sort of lining up at the trap, uh, ready to get ready to get paid because somebody has taken money from somebody. Now this issue came into focus uh, a month or two ago in the context of the Trump administration when um, he had a meeting with, with a number of sheriff's departments, invited them to the White House. The, the issue itself should have come into the forefront uh, more than it did. Unfortunately, it was, it was kind of overshadowed by some uh, creative profanity that was made by a Pennsylvania state senator, which I appreciate, but I think people were more interested in his colorful language than they were in the issue that sparked the whole thing. Basically, uh, a visiting sheriff from Texas uh, complained to the president that um, there there was a a Texan state senator there who was uh, trying to reform civil asset forfeiture. And when when he made this complaint, supposedly Trump uh, responded, you know, who is it? Well, let's ruin their career. And when this got out, another advocate for civil asset forfeiture reform in Pennsylvania, you know, came out of the woodwork on Twitter, which is, of course, where all our politics happen now in the in the Trump era, and, and uh, called him what, a, a lufa face faced shit gibbon. Yeah. <laughs> The reason I really bring it up is twofold. The state senator in Texas that was being threatened was a Republican. The one that came to her aid on Twitter was a Democrat in in Pennsylvania. Uh, For one, do you have any comments on uh, the Trump administration's uh, position, influence uh, on civil asset forfeiture and the hope for reform? And where do you uh, see this in terms of is it on one side of the aisle, or are we seeing evidence that this is a, a bipartisan issue? Well, I, it's absolutely a bipartisan issue. Um, you know, I think it's it's like all bipartisan issues. They kind of it cuts across party lines both ways, right? I mean, you have Democrats who are who, who are don't really see the problem here, uh, and you have Republicans who absolutely see the problem here, and vice versa. And so it you know it's not. Um, it's not something that, that one party, you know, really owns all the way, uh, one way or the other. Um, you know, in terms of what Trump said, I mean, look, I, I, I think it was a situation where I don't know that he thought about the issue to any great degree, and it was kind of presented to him, and that was his snap judgment. But I wouldn't read from that that, you know, um, that that's going to be his position forever. Um, we'll just have to see how that how that plays out. But yeah, you, you can kind of uh, let the know, wind blow hoping, with him on anything, anyway. I hope if someone pointed out to him, you know, that if if one of the guests at Mar-a-Lago was doing cocaine in a bathroom <laughs> um, under the forfeiture laws, that would mean that they could take your whole your whole resort. Wow, that would be entertaining to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, Robert Johnson, uh, attorney for the Institute for Justice, uh, you are all doing human's work. I uh, I appreciate all that you're doing for uh, the underdogs out there who fall prey to this, and uh, thanks for uh, taking the time out and sharing your expertise with us. And if you want to pop your website in there one more time. Sure, uh, it's uh, www.ij.org. 
and it was a pleasure speaking with you. Well, that about wraps things up. We hope you enjoyed Episode 6 of Privacy Patriots, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you join us for the next episode. In the meantime, head on over to www.privacypatriots.org, where you can get further connected with us on Reddit, Twitter, and Facebook. So keep watching the watchers, and stay tuned as we give you the information you need to keep your information your own.